0: Hey, it's Coco and Carly, and we are the hosts of Soul Rehab. Each week we'll inspire you to get back on Blueprint
1: through our experiences and journey living through a higher vibration and consciousness.
0: Because ultimately, we're spiritual
1: beings having human experiences. This is your vibrational experience. This episode is an amazing one. This is where we have my partner and part of the Consciously Coco team, Scott, who talks in peer vulnerability about his childhood abuse, overcoming that and showing and breaking down the barriers through the mask of masculinity. And by doing so, really showing how you can overcome, forgive, And really stand in your power and truth that comes with having radical acceptance. This is such a beautiful episode and goes to show you that we all are wounded. We all have been hurt and to move to a place of pure compassion and the work it takes to do that. He is the energy and men's lifestyle mentor on our team and his story is such a tribute to what can be done when you actually are willing to heal and transform your life. Today's episode is an impactful one. Wouldn't you say? I think so. So we have my partner Scott here in our studio and he's downloading his journey.
0: Yeah. And I think it's going to be a really relatable journey for a lot of not just men, but people in general, maybe not in the sense of, you know, the exact same situations, but definitely the impact on
1: your life and, you know, your response to different situations. Yeah. And I hope that you really take this in. And I hope his journey mostly inspires you and shifts you to realize that we're all wounded. We all have stories. Nobody is better or worse than another. And that hard things happen in life. And the journey is the healing, you know, Mm -hmm. getting to a place of compassion where you realize that everybody who hurt somebody was hurt by somebody too. And
0: like, let's get real. This just healing journey may be your purpose in this life and what a shame it would be if you never experienced that
1: yeah and a lot of people hide their traumas hide their experiences because they're so scared of being free they're so scared to share their story because of so many things so let's give Scott, so much love and light as he begins to break down his journey and story. So, everybody, welcome Scott. Hi, Scott.
2: Hi, everybody.
1: (laughs) Hey, guys. Hey, guys. (laughs) (laughs) So, we would like you to just kind of begin to share your journey and what you're here to talk about. So, just to give everybody a quick um, overview. Scott is the men's lifestyle and energy mentor on our team. He really is the force um, to show men how to break down their layers, mm-hmm. how to really break down the masculinity, and you know, remove the ego from their life. Mm-hmm. And by doing that, you have to face things in your healing journey that you don't want to. Yeah. And. His whole entire life has, I think, brought him to where you are now, wouldn't you say? I would say so. So he's going to start the journey and kind of talk about it. He he uh, has a lot to say. So Who are you, Scott? Who are you?
2: Uh, I think that intro was pretty good. So, I'm not try to be a man of few words, so let's just stick with what was in the <laughs> intro. Um, so the topic we're going to talk about is sexual abuse and if that makes you uncomfortable i'd say really check your feelings but continue to listen anyways because it's probably something that that you need to hear and there's a reason why it makes you uncomfortable because it is uncomfortable it's uncomfortable to talk about it's uncomfortable people to for everyone involved like not just the person being abused but for people to hear about it it makes them uncomfortable because it's such a messy emotional event
1: like a taboo topic at times
2: right? yeah like like no one really like as much converse as many conversations as there is about it today there's still not enough because it's still so hard for people to talk about
1: and why do you think it is so hard for people to talk about like are you it's hard it's hard for you to talk about not maybe necessarily now but previously can you speak to that
2: um it's hard to talk about because you have to really open yourself up and you have to be vulnerable and you have to say like, hey, this happened to me and no one wants to admit that that happened to them. Like we're going to get through in the story. And I joke about it now with with people at, at work or, or with friends and, you know, we make comments to each other about things. And I'm way more comfortable with it now. But I think a lot of that is because people think I'm, I'm joking. You know, people are like, oh, you know, like, uh, we'll be a little bit crude here. And it's like, oh, you know, you probably like having things stuck up your bum. And it's like, no, no, I don't. Because I've had things shoved up my bum and not like, you know, it's not that pleasurable for me. And they look at me and because I'm kind of like, you know, comfortable with who I am and with the abuse that happened. So maybe I'm like, I'm maybe not necessarily smiling, but I'm not like angry because I'm very okay with things that they think that I'm joking because why would people just admit that?
1: Yeah, and I think that... It's really interesting because when you are so free from your wounds and your trauma and you can speak like that, people don't know how to take authentic people. It's
2: shocking because people are not used to being presented with that much real honesty.
0: Well, let's also take it back to how we always talk about how everything is energy and it's a vibration. Like Authenticity is a really high vibing state of being. And so if you aren't that, it's going to be uncomfortable mm-hmm. for you. And that's why it is not common because not everyone is at that level.
2: And, and, it, and it's hard to reach that level because how do you move up if you don't have the conversation? And how do you have that conversation if there's really no place to have it? And I mean therapists and counselors are are great, but they don't necessarily work well for everyone and they didn't work well for me in my journey and what I had to go through to get to where I am today.
1: Yeah. So this is a, a vibrational experience, so um, please listen to the words that Scott are, is saying and really let it flow and impact you and realize um, realize that you're not alone if you are somebody who has experienced any type of trauma in their life. and. You know, once you you wade through the messiness, um, it helps you elevate and and move to a different, like Carly said, vibrational mm-hmm. state. So, can yeah. you? tell... Well, and, and
0: maybe sorry, I don't mean to interrupt, Coco. Yeah. But I just want to also circle back to that is why we're having this conversation. We're not having this conversation for the shock value. We're having this conversation as a learning tool just to say that everyone has the wounds. And it's when you recognize that the wounds are affecting you that you can then heal them and move forward. And that's why we have Scott on today is because he is someone who has healed strong wounds to be the person that he is today.
2: And once you heal those wounds or you're aware of those wounds, you start looking at people and you start talking to people and realizing they they have their own wounds. And then how you treat them all of a sudden is going to be different because it's a lot more love and compassion when you're approaching others, especially when they're having a bad day. So,
1: so can you tell us um, how your journey begun? And obviously you weren't always the person that... Understood this and you were a wounded person Vibrationally wounding other people perhaps with your words with your energy with your decisions because you were wounded so can you break us down with the story of your trauma and how this began, so that You got to this full circle moment. So Did your trauma begin as a kid or as an adult and can you open up and share with us the story of how that began?
2: so We'll start with like the few of the earliest memories that I have of my childhood. And we would be talking around uh, kindergarten to, well, it'll start at kindergarten and probably work its way up to about grade three, and then there'll be a gap in there for a little bit, and then we'll, we'll move on from there. So at kindergarten, I can remember coming home and... And having having to play a game. And the game always wound up around some sort of like sexual, of sexual nature. So it was like, you played a game and you lost, you lost like a sock. Or you played a game and you lost again, you lost like a shirt. You played a game, you lost again, you lost your pants. And then when you were down to nothing and you were naked, then it turned into like, oh, okay, you lost again. You need to touch my penis. Or you need to do this and you need to do that. So that was like, at a very young age of like, shit, I just want to to win. I just need to, I just don't want to lose so I don't have to go through this. I know where this is going and even at like five or six, I knew where it was going and you just want to like, God, I just wish one day I could win so I didn't have to do this. But you're competing against someone who is older than you, who is more skilled than you are at a five-year-old and you're not gonna win. The chances of you winning are are so slim. So you always lost and you always wind yourself up in that position. Then you kind of like you feel like guilty because you just you're just not good enough. And then you have like the psychological manipulation that was like, you know, you're all of a sudden you're just trying to always make that person happy. Because if that person's happy, then your day is just so much easier. And you know, so you're going out of your way to do things for them. So that way you don't have to be put yourself in that situation because that situation is so scary. So even at a young age, it's like, what can I do just to save myself from this abuse and from this trauma?
1: So um, in your situation, the sexual abuse that you encountered as a little kid, because this, this is a topic that a lot of people don't talk about or say, it's, it's never usually a stranger. It's usually somebody you know. So in your case, it was somebody you know?
2: It was somebody that knew, yeah. It was yeah. someone close to the family
1: okay and that that's that's a lot of trauma to carry because um you explain that feeling when you know it's somebody somebody Um, that you know
2: oh that's just like you see them every day so that whole like psychological trauma that i talked about earlier is just like reinforced like every single day it's just it becomes a cycle and it becomes almost routine and you develop like a stockholm syndrome what can i do to make this person happy what can I do to just like prevent this today? How's today going to go? Because how does my day go when it depends entirely on what the other person is feeling? Because you have no control.
1: As a kid, you're feeling like you have no control.
2: Well, yeah, essentially yeah. you have no control because everything you do in your day matters on what the other person did in their day. If they're having a good day, then you were able to have a great day because they're good. But if they had a bad day, then it didn't matter if you had a good day because your day just gets tore down because you're so like psychologically and emotionally dependent upon what that other person is saying and doing to you yeah so when they have a bad day it just gets like rains and pours and thunders and earthquakes collapse onto you
1: so this continued um for
2: uh a few years the kind of like the same cycle where it was always a game where you're just trying to learn, to, to play, to try to win. And I mean, I'm not very, I don't like to say I'm very competitive as an adult, but I, I do like to strive to win, but I'm okay with losing. But at that age, I don't think I was even consciously aware of that. I just knew I never wanted, like it was hopeless to even try because I was just going to lose either way. So then as the years kind of progressed and you have like that emotional and psychological trauma, I really went like inside and started looking at things. So I would start looking at like, um, spirituality books. I can remember reading the Celestine prophecy when I was like 12 years old, I read Deepak Chopra or Chopra. Is that how you say his name? Chopra. Yeah. Yeah. I remember reading, I remember, I remember reading (laughs) his books and things like that. I mean, I was a weird kid with, all my past lives as it is now that I look back on it, like I was already super weird, awkward kid because I developed like my own language, like written language that I had written out and I was like super proud of it and just awkward and weird because I had all this trauma and then I had all these weird ideas about like astral projection and meditation and all these things and that's what I was doing. Like when I would put myself to sleep at night, I would lie down and put myself into a meditative channel and that's how I would sleep. I would sit there and you know I knew about chakras and you know when you sit there and meditate and you extend your root chakra out and touch the ground and then the flower grows up through all your other chakras and kind of out through the crown. Like I was doing all this stuff at 12 years old living in a small town with a library about the size of most people's kitchens. (laughs) So like how I came across all this stuff and accessed all this thing divine intervention the universe putting things in the right place your
1: soul knew the way
2: my soul knew the way because like there's not a lot of reasons for those books to be available in a small town but i found them and i read them and i practiced them
1: and so when you look back on that now when you were experiencing this trauma um and even if it did subside a little bit this was kind of your you know your peaceful place like where you felt most at home would you say when you would when you would go into these practices and stuff, not even really knowing because there was nobody around at that time that would even have told you that this is something that you should have done. Well, I
2: don't know if it was like, it would have been peaceful. It was just like, it was an escape, you know, comic books were the heyday in the eighties and nineties when I was growing up. So who doesn't want to be like, you know, like professor X and leave your body and be telepathic and move things with your mind and leave your body and float and travel around the world. Like that was cool. But I mean, everyone wants to be like that superhero. And I think maybe as a child, that's how I was looking at it, was trying to be that superhero and have those superpowers and and do all those things. And now as an adult looking back, it's like, yeah, I do all that stuff. I'm not a superhero. I'm just a a regular dad who does regular things. But I can just do all these things now. But I don't do them now to escape or to be a hero. I do them now to to heal myself and to move forward in my journey through life. So as I was reading, you know, the Celestine Prophecies and and all these books, I was also very much like trying to deal with the trauma of the abuse because it was never talked about in my family until I graduated high school. So we're talking about like, like grade six through grade seven now. And then all this stuff is coming up. You're kind of growing into a person as an adult. You know, you're going through your hormone phase. Homosexuality was kinda of new, kinda, of, well, I shouldn't say new because it's been around since like forever, but I guess a little bit more mainstream and you're seeing like that the the community on TVs and it's being talked about. It's a little bit more rampant, but it's not quite there yet. It's more on the fringes. So then you're like, well, you're growing up and as you're trying to like develop feelings, you're like, well, because I've had a penis in my mouth, because I've had a penis in my bum, like, you know, and my body responded to those things. Like, am I gay? Like, how do I, how do I, how am I dealing with all of these thoughts and feelings when my God, you know, I've had more experience with a man than I ever, than I had at a woman, with a woman, because then I never had any experience it. So you were trying to deal with like, with those thoughts and those feelings and the confusion around that. So I mean there's a lot so, of that.
1: So when you say um, it like it didn't come out in the family until until you're uh, you know what almost an adult. Yeah. Did you spend a large portion of your you know preteen and teenage years where the abuse wasn't happening like dealing with these thoughts that you're saying? Like is this when a lot of these thoughts came up or is this more when the coping mechanisms came up because the abuse happened more when you were a child? correct
2: um it happened a little bit like there was a, a few period, few years where there was no abuse and i think like everyone else i kind of just like shoved it into like a corner and just kind of left it but like with anything it goes rotten and you have to you have to deal with it sooner or later because it starts to come out and it was coming out in ways i used to like cut myself and carve things into my legs my arms you know.
1: And so why why do you think you were cutting yourself?
2: Because ex- that feeling of pain was more easier to handle. The physical sensation of pain was easier to handle than the emotional pain that I was going through.
0: And did that provide you
1: relief in that moment? Yeah. Interesting. And were, and were you hoping that somebody would see your cutting And you would be seen and they would ask you why you're doing that. Were you hoping to share your experience because you had all of this inside of you and you really wanted to share it? Was was that also a thought for you?
2: I don't think there was a conscious thought. I think I was doing it probably unconsciously so someone would see, so someone would save me. I mean, growing up, I would think I was kind of like a forgotten like middle child
1: From your perspective. From my
2: perspective, like there wasn't, you know, I wasn't the firstborn, I wasn't the last born. You know, I wasn't really good at anything specific. So it was very easy to like, you know, deal with everyone else that had everything going on where I wasn't doing a whole bunch. So I think it was very easy for me to have been set aside. So it was a combination of my own choices and just like, okay, so Scott just doesn't require that much attention. So that's okay. We can go deal with, with all the other ones. And I don't think it was my parents' fault but I was definitely like, like cutting and doing things for attention. And the, and the thing is, is teachers did notice. It's not like people didn't notice. They did notice, but no one ever came up to me and asked me about it. They always went to like my brothers or sisters, the teachers, they didn't even go to my parents. They just be like, wow, like Scott, they like like well, Scott looks like he's having like he's been having like a really hard time the last few months. Like, is everything okay? So they would go to them and ask them, and they'd be like, "Yeah, like he's fine," but like, I wasn't fine. So for whatever reason,
0: well, because I, I
2: blame my personality maybe probably more than what I should, and it's probably more the teachers and the adults just being nervous and not really wanting to get involved at the time that I'm just really hard to approach. That's what I say now. Like, I'm just really hard to approach. I'm just really hard to deal with. I'm complicated. And a lot of people don't want to do that. And I'm standoffish. But I think what it is, is people themselves don't want to get involved in that. They don't want to mess with people's lives and and get their hands dirty, even though there may be rumors of things and, you know, things might be popping up in the background and other things that they're hearing that maybe things aren't okay, but we don't want to get involved in case we're wrong does that make sense
1: well yeah i mean people are so scared of the unknown you know when our head goes crazy with these thoughts of you know they're looking at a kid who's cutting and especially in a small town they don't want to open up that can of worms well
0: let's also circle it back those people i can guarantee you aren't healed either so it's like those teachers that are noticing that it's you know they obviously care for you as a student and want to see you in the best version of yourself, but what's going on in that teacher's mind? What are they dealing with? Like they're dealing with their inner child with their wounds. So it's like, do they really want to take on someone else's issues? No. And I think that's the fear that a lot of people, that's why you see a lot of people that just back away and turn it, turn a side eye.
1: Yes. And they, and people are overwhelmed because you know, that teacher too, you have no idea. Like Carly just said, people's wounds, mm-hmm. the lineage of their family or that, what you triggered in what, them. I was just going to say yeah. what you just triggered in them. So It's, it's a whole ball game of energy and vibrations that people mm -hmm. tend, society tends to ignore. Mm -hmm. And
2: let's be honest, when people do get involved in that sort of thing or try to get involved, they experience real severe like lashback. Yeah. And it's like, okay, well, sorry, like don't bite my head off. Like I was, I'm just trying to do the right thing. But because the person that is so wounded, you know, almost gets like that super defense mechanism yeah. up and goes to fight or flight and starts like they're like a cornered rabbit and they're just like start attacking and clawing at anything you know it's like hey whoa i'm, I'm just trying to help mm-hmm. here sorry that's so then next time they don't bother to get involved because the trauma the experience from the first time kind of like lingers mm-hmm. and makes them really standoffish
1: yeah so while you're 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 dealing with all this as a as a preteen into your adult you're just stuffing it away then the more the years go on correct I mean it's 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 not a known topic within the community or family really everybody has their own little secrets their own little trauma and you're just compartment like just not thinking of it like could you speak to that how your journey went then transitioning from the child who was abused to now you're a 16 year old you're 17 year old who's had sexual trauma like how are your relationships you're that masculine man that you just spoke about you know, are you gay? Like, what are what is the transition for you here?
2: Well, the transition took took years. It wasn't something so simple. It was just like
1: like did you talk like typical therapy is? You need to go to a counselor. You need to talk to somebody. You know, our work is energy. We mm-hmm. understand all of this is energy. We understand the lineage of this, and um, now we can we can help these type of of traumas within people, because we understand the lineage mm-hmm. and the and the energy. And that's what this whole podcast is about and the work that we do as a team. But rolling back, you know, 20 years, the it wasn't talked about, I'm assuming, and this was not in mainstream media. And people weren't as equipped to talk, to deal with it as they were then. So like, what was even your journey? Who do you even reach out to? How do you even begin to cope with this other than, oh this happened and you put it in a container in the back corner and supposedly move on with your life correct
2: yeah that's essentially like kind of what it is and it, like i said it was bleeding out because like i would you know cut myself and try and experience like that pain rather than feeling anything and i would disappear into books and i would read in the books i would read i would look at the characters and their their story arcs and be like yeah, they're wounded and i'd and unfortunately, that set myself up for, for failure because I was like, okay, who can I idolize to, to try to become? Because that's, you know, set some goals. And one of the people that I'd idolized and tried to become for, for a lot of years and that really led me down a bad road was it was a knight in a book who lived for honor and essentially, like, I, I became I became him in so many ways because he could not accept failure if he failed he just like buckled down redoubled his redoubled his effort that's what he did you know if he wasn't good at something if something bad went on he just like okay nope just not good enough like if I fasted for three days and you know I broke fast after three days when I wasn't I was aiming for for six well then I need to like fast for 18 days
1: so instead of so instead of doing traditional like therapy, because again, yeah. it wasn't available or it, it wasn't talked about, you, you went into, into books and almost like escapism. Escapism, es- and escapism and then mimicked that into your life instead of actually looking at the trauma, which I think you can correct me if I'm wrong. Most people mm-hmm. do in this type yeah. of scenario. Yeah, like definitely... They find something to escape in sex, drugs, porn. Mm-hmm. Yours was fantasy books to kind of mimic an alter ego almost. Yeah, Yeah.
2: to have have an alternate reality. And I grew up when the internet was just like coming alive. So I would go, I could go online. And online was great because I was an awkward, weird kid in a small town. So if you see me walking around, you're like, wow, he's into like fantasy books. He's creating his own written language. Like he talks about funny things. He's cutting himself. Like he's just all over the place. But online, I could be anyone.
1: Mm-hmm. And you didn't have that trauma
2: online. And I, well, no, I... To the, well, you didn't. I, well, I could have that trauma online, but here's the thing about being online is when you can be anyone, you don't wind up being anyone, especially not in those days when, you know, you could... There was no, like, pictures. There's no Instagram, no Facebook. It was this like, you typed in a username. So you didn't become anyone. You became your higher self is what I would call it now. But essentially, you became your truer self because... Mm-hmm. If you wanted to change who you were, you could just change your name, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and that's it. Because there's no picture. There's you know you people only knew exactly what you told them. So being online, you could be more open. You could be more real. You actually, I had better relationships with people over the internet than I ever did with people in real life because if I wanted to, and I don't think I changed. I still use the same username and stuff like that from when I was on. So I just. Was able to work through things that way and realize that my personality of who I am online I matched more with that so what I started to do was bring that personality from online to the real world
1: mm-hmm. so
2: how I talk how I spoke how I listen to people I brought that because I liked that and I enjoyed who that was and that made me more comfortable made me more confident I took steps to build that life on the internet into my real life now.
1: Now, where you're at today.
2: Now where I'm at today. And the basis of who I am at today probably really, really came from those internet chat rooms. Because they allowed me to be who I am and have conversations with other people who were going through maybe not similar things. I had their own things, but we could connect. And they could be their authentic selves and I could be my authentic self. And there was less judgment.
1: So really what he's saying is through a trauma timeline, you know, years of trauma, he then looked for escape, escapism and coping mechanisms to now almost connect with his future self, who, who is sitting here now, 20 years later, Mm -hmm. you know, and we talk about that on a previous podcast about the higher self. So Scott's, saying how, you know, his soul knew the way as that traumatized kid, he was using as as a coping mechanism. But that version of him now at, you know, 36, 37 was like, come on, Mm -hmm. come this way. So Scott,
0: then what did that look like for you? Because you know, when we talk about higher self we're like you do the work, which is obviously healing. So at that point when you were online and you're like, this is this is me, this is, you know, who I'm gonna become. How did you implement that into your life? What steps did you take to then be that version now at 37?
2: Um, Just really, really slowly just started trying to like match that online personality to, you know, my real life personality and it has to be steps because once people in a group setting pigeonhole you as you know the weird one the class clown you know the jock the cheerleader those typical the stereotypical stereotypes it's hard for people to really really change their what they see of you and who they are
1: and i mean you you fell apart for a really long time really, really long time before you, you really, truly aligned in your higher self, but you need it to fall apart to then fall together. So I think been, you need to, uh, talk now about how you've, you, you know, if the wounds of the, of it all, the energy of it all that kind of has been circling as an energy storm for all these years. To not allow you to, you had to have your journey to go to your higher self. That's what people don't understand. Yeah.
0: And I think, yeah, exactly. So it's, it's not like, you know, one day Scott was in a chat room and he was talking and you know, you were like, Oh, like, I like this version of me. I'm just going to become that tomorrow. Like there were clearly situations that your soul put you in to experience things to actually level up to that. So can you speak to that? What yeah. The, what like after, after you moved been. out
1: of these, these chat rooms as, as a, you know, grade 11, grade 12 teenager, you then went on to live a life with this trauma that was not talked about.
2: Okay. Well, that's, so, that's, yeah, that's simple enough to do. Cause what I had done was I had moved from a small town essentially to a, uh, to a big city. And in that big city where I knew no one and there was no previous thoughts of who I was, it was a lot easier to start incorporating that online personality into my everyday life.
1: And when you moved to this new city, the family dynamic of your trauma still existed, right? Like nobody was talking about it. Like, could you share a little bit about that? Because here you had this whole, this whole energy of your whole, you know, child teen life now you're in a new city you're still carrying this trauma is the energy within your family healed like what's going on for for you there do you just shut this out like obviously this trauma is still bleeding all over your life correct
2: yeah so the abuse finally came to surface uh, my last year Or a second last, so grade 11 in high school, everything kind of came out. And my parents, being fantastic as they are, were probably like their world would have been rocked. You know, here they, I thought they had a... you know, a a picture perfect family. Everything was okay. You know, everyone was kind of happy. You know, even though I was cutting myself, they,
1: you, you know, can put that in a box, you know, you, you can, can, you can yeah. define that as a teen problem. Or it's a phase. It's yeah. a phase. Like it's, yeah. Yeah.
2: So they could easily write it off, whatever. But I mean, so when they had finally heard about it, yeah, they were, they like the world would have rocked. And, you know, talking to them now about that situation, I think that they made every single best choice that they could make at that time. Because there's no, there's no playbook now for it. And there was no playbook for it. In the late 90s. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's I- no idea. There's no right or wrong way to really, to do things or not things. There's no right or wrong way.
1: To handle it. To
2: handle it. Because you're dealing with so many different emotions, so many different personalities, so many different person, like, like traits. And you then all set in your own trauma that literally it's like, they made the best choices they can make based off their experiences that they've had.
1: Yeah. And I think like that's a huge topic, Carleek, because a lot of people that have experienced trauma and say their parents didn't know about it. They want to blame the parents. People want to sit there and look at the adults in their life and blame them because well, you're thinking,
0: how did you not know? Yeah.
1: Or it's, or it's, you could have an alcoholic parent Mm -hmm. or you could have that, but people are not understanding that everything is energy and there's lineage there. Mm -hmm. So, it would be very easy for Scott to sit there and be angry at his parents. Like, why didn't they know? Or why didn't they help me? Or why didn't they save me? And it's like, you, even now, you don't think about that. You know, you might a little bit more, but you you don't think about that. You just don't. Mm-hmm. And you can't blame other people for doing that the best that they knew how to do with the information they had at the time, correct? Like
0: well, Yes, and the thing is too is, you know, someone close to you, like your parents, like, I can, you know, they have your best intentions, like, oh, they have the best intentions always at heart. So they're doing the best they can. So you can't go back and expect them to have been the superhero because, again, it comes back to what were they dealing with? Yeah. Like, and were I'm, they a victim in some sort? What are their wounds? Like, and, how is this triggering them? And even
1: if people who have trauma from a parent... Yeah. You know, their parent was wounded and people will argue and they will be in denial and they will want to look at themselves as that constant state of victimness. Mm -hmm. But in order to heal your wounds and to change the trajectory of your life, you have to do that inner work to realize that people are wounded and wounded and wounded. And there's the lineage there hurt people, hurt people. There's a very, very small percentage of people who were hashtag born that way. Mm -hmm. So in your situation, yeah. Compassion to your parents because they, they were, you know, raised in a generation and in, in in a smaller town mindset where this just, it existed for years. This is not new in families, Mm -hmm. in lives and everything. It existed, but Like you said, it would have rocked their world. Mm -hmm. And how do they cope? How do they deal with trauma? How does anyone deal with trauma?
2: Well, they did what they were taught, essentially. Never really brought it up or talked about it. I mean, they started to deal with their trauma from the abuse and the finding out of it more when I was probably in my mid 20s because I started talking to them about it and approaching to them because I was getting to the point in my life then Where I was a lot more okay with it. I could talk about it and not be hurt and I realized that They did the best that they could and they honestly had no idea what they're doing because I started to look at them as like You know, you take the rose-colored glasses off of your parents. They're not superheroes. We're flawed. They're flawed. Myself as a parent, I'm flawed. The choices and the decisions I make for my kid now may not be the right ones, but they're the best ones that I can make for them at this point in time in their lives. And that's, no matter what I choose, it could be wrong because they might've thought I should choose something else. Once you start to look at your parents through those type of love and compassion eyes, and I could have that conversation with them a few times, they started to like, open up a little bit more on how their struggles and things were dealing with it.
1: And I think too, we always say this, is when you start to do the work and you start to heal and you start to release, everyone around you starts to shift as well. So as being your partner and watching this healing journey with you and your parents, it's really interesting that when, especially in the last few years, when it has been so healing and you've really just talked about it from compassionate eyes, And really forgiven the person who hurt you because that person was 100% a victim. Mm -hmm. So much compassion for that person because that person was hurt by somebody else and that person was also hurt. And when you started to speak that way to your parents and really opening up and talking about who you know is the person that hurt the person that hurt you, so two lineages back, everything starts to shift because that vibrational frequency starts taking place.
2: Well, you stop looking at them as a predator and you start to look at them with were, a little bit more compassion well, and love too. and they're a victim. And that's what it is. You can't you can't be angry and my siblings are still very much angry and mad and upset about it and in that like that victim state where they're just they're so hurt like they're like as we say they're bleeding all over the place. And I was at that point too for such a long time because we go back to when I was talking about that fantasy character that I started to, to emulate in real life where I would just like make a mistake and then I would just double the standards and try and do better. Then if I would fail, I'd make the mistake and double the standards and do better and always aiming for that version of perfection in my life that I could never achieve because those standards are just, they're not able to be held You cannot work 24 hours a day, you know, sleep zero hours, spend time with, you know, your wife, your kids, you know, and not fail. You can't do that. You can't. That's not even setting yourself for your up for success. You're setting yourself up for failure, and that happened. You know, it took. It affected my first marriage because I tried to live that way and then it really came out in my second marriage because my first marriage had failed. So I just kept doubling the expectations for myself and doubling and doubling and doubling it because I hated myself so much and I was trying to avoid things so much that eventually everything did come to a head.
1: So I think that's really interesting because we also talk a lot about energy and the trauma response with energy is busy Mm -hmm. and avoiding and definitely in masculine energy, because you definitely, you know, masculine energy is known to not talk about it, but also, you know, how many females have we seen that are just busy because they're avoiding, right. Mm -hmm. And trying to keep up to that level. And I feel that that's strongly what you were doing in this, in this, it was a trauma response to the energy that was stuck within your body from this trauma is you did it in a sense of perfection,
2: I did it in a sense of perfection. And I mean, the only time I was happy was when I was at work, when I was busy. I mean, you could work 16 hours a day. And the only thing you had to think about was the exact next thing you had to do because you didn't want to, you had to be present at work. Otherwise, you would have got hurt. You could have got someone else hurt. Like the outcome for not paying attention was so severe, you had to pay attention.
1: So as you're moving forward in this whole, you know, trying to be this perfectionist and achieve this type of life and you have marriages and you're having kids, how is your healing journey taking place? Like, are you, um, wanting to ever, you know, speak with the person who did this to you? Are you trying to avoid being like this person or having any type of association with this person? Like, I think people need to understand like there's are understanding that like you went through the trauma, they're possibly looking at themselves, but how do you get that from that point to victim, to, to a place of compassion, how do you move through that energy? How do you, how do you level up from victim to understanding that the person who hurt you is a victim? Because everybody can say, okay, I've had this trauma or I've had these wounds. You know, even Carly and I talk about it in previous relationships or friendships where at one point you were angry and hurt but then you move to that healed place of compassion. So you started talking about in your twenties.
2: Yeah. And it'll, it'll show how it kind of comes, comes around into, into that point is because I hated, I hated myself. I hated that person and I hated everything about them. So I was the exact opposite of that in every single way that I could be. And that's, how I held on to it for so long. But when you are angry for so long, it's exhausting. It's tiring. Like if you close your fist right now and you squeeze it, how long can you hold that for? That's like the bottle of rage that is just inside. And it would seep out like every now and then because I would get mad at myself for not being perfect, for, for failing. And that pop, that lid would just like, pop just a little bit and things would come out and I would punch holes in the walls and I would, you know, break oh god, chairs or whatever the heck it was at the time because I was so hurt and I didn't know how to deal with it. I didn't know how to release it. And there's really no conversation that I could that I knew I could have. So I was dealing with all this stuff like just internally and just trying to like slam the lid back down on that pop bottle how do you it only works for so long and eventually one day it came off and when it came off it blew i bled all over a house literally um, because i was breaking glass i was punching holes in the walls i was crushing an oak table with my hands like I have scars all over my knuckles my palm of my hands from it like i was bleeding everywhere because i was so scared because the person i was in a relationship with was leaving me because i was such a mess so i it had to come out sooner or later and she had tried to talk about it with me and i was just never ready because i never really had wanted to face it and i could have the conversations with her and bring up the abuse But it was always like, yeah, I was abused, but like, how's the weather? You know, it's really, it's really nice out here. And I would just glance on at it and I would never allow myself to feel those emotions and go through it because it was so bad. Like people like to sit in front of a fire and feel the heat from the fire. No one wants to put their hand in the fire and get burned, even though it's almost like, it's almost like a cleansing fire. And that's essentially kind of what happened. I had destroyed the house. She had left. You know, I was looking around the house and seeing the broken glass, the broken, you know, cabinetry, the broken table, and just hyperventilating and ramping myself back up again and destroying more. And then when I became back into my body, it was like hyperventilating and crying and just like releasing everything. And the thoughts from my head is like, I've gone so far now.
1: That it's like unforgivable. It's unforgivable. Mm
2: -hmm. No one can forgive me for this. And I can't forgive myself for this. How can anyone else forgive me for this? You know, it's time to end it. It's time, time to go. So yeah, I wound up taking like pills and trying to commit suicide. Because I couldn't deal with the pain anymore. I was so done. I had released it all. I was empty. All that tension that had been built up was was gone. What do you do when you're just that empty and there's just like, there's nothing? And you don't even know how to even feel that because you've never felt nothing before. You're just empty because you've lived off rage, anger, frustration for so long. That's been your food, your subsidence. When that's gone, you're like, "I I don't know what I am without this pain. It's, it's time, it's time to try and kill myself. So I took a whole bunch of pills and wound up walking away from it, thankfully, but I mean, it, that, so, that. So,
1: so in that moment, that is Carly, that's energy, right? When he's, when he's in that moment, all that stuff is coming out of him
0: it almost sounds like to me, like that would be the start of your awakening. Like it's, you know, we always say how like you're going to have an awakening and it's going to be intense. and Obviously that was very intense and it's not like that for everybody, Mm -hmm. but that was kind of like your soul saying it's time for a reset. And then once it was completely, you know, every, you mentioned everything was just out of you. You were empty. We always say Coco, it's like, who are you without your story? So who are you Scott without being angry? Who are you without the pain? Right. It's, and then you just, so you don't know. And that's
2: that's probably the scariest thing that people can do is I'm no longer Scott, a sexual assault victim. I'm just Scott.
1: Yeah.
0: And you only know what you know, and you did not know who just Scott is. And that's scary. I I,
2: I never, I've never been with just Scott. I've always been with Scott, the sexual abuse victim. What, what does that look like? I don't know.
1: And so it's so scary. Like our minds are so scared of the unknown. And it's, it's better at that moment to think that you should die because your identity is so wrapped up in your trauma and that release of energy, you know, decades of energy just came out in that singular night in that singular moment and like rock bottom has a basement and you were sitting there. Yeah,
0: and I mean the thing is too is with that is because you were wounded and you hadn't dealt with the wounds yet. It's yeah. like if you are doing the work and you are trying to heal, then when you sit there with just yourself, you're not gonna have that. Oh, it's over moment. You'll under you'll have the understanding behind it. But for you, it feels like it. That's you know, obviously everything's meant to be, and we we planned it all to happen this way. So your soul planned for that to be your moment. Um, but after that, once you know looking back, let's say like a week after that happened, like, how were you feeling as, as a person?
2: Oh, a week after that happened? I, I mean, we can, we can talk about it, but it would have took me another three or four years after that moment to really sit back and be able to, to reflect upon it. Because after that moment, I was so, I was so numb. I was so scared to feel anything, scared to feel happiness, feel scared to feel joy, because
1: well, you had an over. You had an. He had an overdose yeah. that he survived from, mm-hmm. and like you had. You have said to me like that is the most scariest raw moment, especially for well anyone, but especially for masculine energy, who very much is the support network for everybody. You were alone. And, yeah. and this you had
0: zero control. Yeah. Once you took those pills, you had no control over how that was going to affect you. And as a man, yeah. you're told you were in control. You were the provider. You ensure everything happens how it's supposed to. And in that moment, you literally took that away from yourself.
1: Yeah. And in this whole moment of like the, the terrorizing the house and taking these pills and cutting yourself up, that was also, that was the trauma coming out. But yeah. that's also the inner child. hmm that's that scared little boy who is what? Upset that your wife is going to leave you or? or... Well,
2: that's, that's exactly it is. Is that scared little boy who's like, I'm not, I'm not mad at her for leaving. I'm not angry at her that she's leaving. I'm scared because I'm being left alone.
1: alone. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: And it had nothing, my anger, my destroying the house had less to do with her and had more to do with me my anger my shittiness of a husband had to do with me because i was scared i was traumatized and i couldn't handle my own feelings and i just wanted to be like mothered is essentially what it would be mm-hmm. the way to do it like i wanted to be held i wanted to be cuddled i wanted to be like things are gonna be okay you
1: wanted to be seen yeah
2: and they they, they weren't okay she couldn't provide that for me because you know she had her, her own wounds and her own misgivings and stuff that she was going through that she was just unable to give. So it's not like we were a bad couple or, you know, necessarily like a bad relationship. It was just we just weren't good for each other. That's all it was. Oil and water are both liquids, but they don't mix, but they can still sit in the same cup together. Mm -hmm. And that's essentially what that relationship really was, was just a bad mix of people.
1: And I think that by you sharing this story, it really shows that like everybody has these relationships or they have these instances in their life where, you know, somebody acts out Mm -hmm. or somebody um, does, you know, yeah what you would term unforgivable things or you know someone dr- drove drunk and killed somebody or somebody you know hit somebody which is not that is not okay by any means are we saying that's okay but you learn when you heal yourself and save yourself and do that work that those people that do those actions are hurt people mm-hmm. People are not born this way to go and get in a vehicle, drive drunk and kill somebody. Mm -hmm. People are not born this way to break oak tables and terrorize their house. There is an energetic reason Mm -hmm. why somebody gets to these points and does this because it's all energy that is stuck within the body and a lot of times trauma and coping mechanisms and all the things to get them to this point. So, by you sharing your story, I think you're really trying to put a highlight on that for people to realize no excuse for behavior, 100%. Mm-hmm. But a lot of times you have to get to that volcano moment, mm-hmm. that awakening. Yeah. And I, everybody's is different, correct?
0: Yeah. I was just going to say, I was going to use the analogy that you use, Scott, of the pop bottle. So, it's like you have soda and like you love the soda, it's sweet, it's, you know, a good time. But if you shake the soda enough, there's enough trauma that, that soda goes through, it's going to blow. And that's energy. That's mm-hmm. just like the personification of like the energy feeling that we're talking about.
1: Yeah, correct. So like Carly said, afterwards, you know, it took you a long time to even get to the next layer of healing because now yeah. you had your awakening. Like there was Scott before that episode and Scott after, I would say. Yeah, And
0: then I, like, I'm wondering too, Scott, I'm assuming that you know that point happens you awaken you go through all that but you know your patterns and such didn't change overnight um
2: no. they, they, it would have been it would have been a slow change because I changed my my life from then but like I said I they, w- they would have changed probably a lot more than what you would think mm-hmm. in subtle ways but essentially I had turned the the emotion switch right off mm-hmm. and I was just a zombie. I wake up, get dressed, go to work. You know,
1: and so, so you wow. found a
0: new way to cope. Exactly. It was well, a new essentially, yeah. Mechanism. I was no
2: longer like using work as an escapism. I was using, like, numbing. Numbing. I just numb myself. I didn't drink. I didn't do drugs. I had just turned off everything, so I wasn't just happy. I just wasn't sad. It was just like, okay, we flatlined, and that's how I existed, like, for years.
1: Because the flatlining, then you were now explain that to us like because you didn't want to feel or what was what pushed you into flatlining after this episode
2: after you experienced after i had experienced such raw emotion such intense raw emotion it it was scary and because i was so scared of it it was a lot easier not to feel any emotion because what if i let a little bit of emotion in and then it got too out of control where I couldn't handle it and I was so scared of that because I was trying to just like control everything I was trying to handle everything and be that that rock and go back to kind of like you know that steadfast steady reliable you know image of a man where it's just like nothing rocks him but I was so blown off course and like a kite, I'd lost my, the string that someone was holding on to, and I was just flapping in the wing. And I didn't even re, realize it at that time that I was just so lost and trying to just find my way back. And so I,
1: that, so that is a lot of what an awakening is. Mm-hmm. And we talk about that a lot um, in our work. Me and Carly always say that there is that singular moment in time where life just gets hard and you hit that rock bottom. Yeah. Mine was a breakup. Yours was a breakup where you're like, I'm freaking done. Like this is so hard. And then you shift. Yeah. And you all of a sudden awaken, you start slow. Some people awaken really fast. You know, Scott had already unconsciously awakened as a kid. Right. And so now here he is just numb. And that's where you like really start moving your, your seat of the soul starts moving because you realize that, who I was before is no longer who I am, and you're kind of like a newborn. You don't really know who you are or what to do, and it's scary. Mm-hmm. And the layers start slowly peeling back, and that I would say was was what was starting with you. You were just kind of floating in this new energy. You're you're starting your awakening, and your awakening, I think, from that point took took a good ten years.
2: I know. Don't, don't that, you think? Maybe not ten years necessarily. Because what I noticed was, even though I wasn't feeling anything, what I had kind of done was, I quit talking. And when you quit talking, and you start really listening to other people, and you start observing, you start seeing things, and you just start, and things just start to change for you, you because you start to really hear them, because you're no longer listening to reply, you're listening just to listen. And I mean, I... Had a number of years after the suicide attempt in that night where the girl I was with had stayed and we tried to make things better, but because I was so emotionally numb that, and I wasn't coming back out of that shell, maybe quick enough for her that she, she did leave. So it was just like, he just kept listening and just kept like doing the things that I was doing and just starting to be a lot more aware and allow myself to really feel things slower. Like it took me probably a few years after the suicide attempt to really like start to allow feelings to come back in. And as I got more comfortable with like a little, we'll say like on a scale of one to 100, it would go to like a five. Okay, we can handle a five. Okay, down days maybe, you know, would take me down for a little bit. And then I would we'll say like a negative five or whatever. And then you kind of like, okay, I can handle that. And then you kind of just start like building the scale back up and, and noticing like the roll of the roller coaster or the, the roll of the waves coming in and out. And you start to navigate them a little bit better. You're almost like relearning how to experience emotions and how to handle them. But there's like no language. There's no, there's no words because those things, emotional words weren't taught to me growing up.
1: Yeah, so when you're trying to piece your life back together and go through this awakening, you're also this like strong masculine energy. Like looking at you right now, me and Carly always talk about this. Like you are masculine energy. He has full sleeves, mm-hmm. he has the beard, he loves fitness. He's that he's that man's man. So, to be able to sit there and talk about any of this, is almost like you're speaking Greek like it's foreign it's really hard to learn to relearn this or learn this so that you can you know come out of the mask of masculinity that is also surrounding you
2: because well, it's, it's really hard yeah you just have to start accepting I mean the emotion the emotional the emotional side of things because like there's you have happy you have sad you have angry you have depressed and you have hungry but in between those five emotions there's a range of things that you can feel that are a lot more complex than just those simple things. And that's what I was really starting to learn. I was starting to put together, well, you know, okay, well, I'm happy. Well, I'm not really happy and I'm not really content. Okay, like I'm joyful. You know, I'm not really sad and I'm not really angry. Oh, I'm just like disappointed, and start using a lot more of those words. And I quit trying to answer the question like, when people ask you, how are you? Oh, I'm fine. Well, fine is like a mindless word. It's, what, what's fine, like it's so generic. Be like, no, like I'm, I'm gracious. I'm full of gratitude. I'm, I'm nervous, I have anxiety today. You know, I'm a little bit depressed. And you start adding some of those words because as your language evolves with those words, and you're able to describe yourself better, you're opening yourself up to new possibilities and you're less limited.
1: And so all of this is wonderful that you got to this point, but as somebody who is listening and hearing this, they're probably like, I can't grasp how you dug yourself out of this darkness to this, new ver- this newer, higher version of you moving to the point of this compassion. So is there somebody in your life that helped you? Did you just kind of dig, dig, dig deep? Like just, you knew how to face your shadows. You knew how to sit with this. Were you facing at any point the trauma still? How were you unpacking that? Because you still had all these energies. You're starting to learn how to do the motions, but are you facing the energy? Like how do, how do people unpack that? How do you unpack this? Because yeah, it's, it's, it's wonderful that you can now speak these words and do these things, but you, you unpack that and what started triggering you, who started triggering you, how did this help you evolve? Because that's the biggest thing, when you say, Carly? People don't they don't know how to begin. They don't know how to face this well, and energy. They don't, they don't understand.
0: Then they don't know how to begin because like, that's a lot. Just think about all the questions that you just asked Scott, like yeah. where do you even start? Like if you could kind of summarize, <laughs> I know that's hard, but like, just to break it down, like what, what was your motivation, I guess, to get through that? If we could sum dumb it down to, to one thing, yeah, like, what's to the motivation the point
1: where you're now sitting at a compassionate place with this trauma, like, Being your partner, I know your journey quite well, but I know this summer there was that moment when you looked over at me and you said, The person who hurt me, I have nothing but compassion and love for them because it made me the man I am today. And like it makes me emotional even saying that now because we were in the car and you looked over and I started bawling and you had tears in your eyes and you're like, I just have so much love and compassion for that person. Because they were a victim. They're struggling. They're, they're carrying the weight of this energy on their shoulders. And you took the rocks out of your backpack to heal. And you're seeing that all of this happened for a sole purpose, for a reason to get to a place of compassion. But what started those steps? And I really feel that like being your partner, yes, your previous relationship, that whole awakening, like Carly said... But then what really triggered you to get to this this compassionate place? Are you aware of it even?
2: Oh yeah. It's and here's the thing, it's it's gonna be simple, it's gonna be easy. That doesn't mean it's it's gonna be that this means it's gonna be harder. The simplest things are always the hardest things to do.
1: So what's the simplest thing?
2: I wanted to be happy. I wanted to love myself. That's essentially what it comes down to. But as simple as that statement is, it's so hard to do because you have to start, like you have to be a little willing to look at the dark side of yourself. You have to be willing to look at the light side of yourself and be okay with both. You have to be in that balance, that yin-yang, masculine, feminine energy. And you just have to be willing to accept, accept both of it. And that's essentially really what I guess started the change was after the, we had broken up with the, the previous relationship was I'm like, I just want to be happy. And I'm just like, what can I do to make myself happy? And that's really what I started.
1: You search for the joy. But I started like, searching for Genuine joy.
0: happiness, not a aid of happiness. Not yes. external. Not yes. like I'm going to yeah. buy this truck exactly. in
1: this house. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I'll
0: have a vodka that makes me happy, yes. but it wasn't that no, kind of happiness. No. And, I mean, <laughs> and I mean, here's
2: the thing is like, I drank, I partied, you know, I, I did drugs and I did all those things, but I mean, none of those things make you, make you happy, but what they definitely do is help you avoid your life. I mean, we, I guess we're just talking about it now, but you have to realize that from like 18 to, oh my God, 27, maybe 10 years, there was like a lot of like drug and alcohol abuse in there that we didn't even mention because it's, I don't know.
0: Well, it's not conducive. You weren't healing yourself. It was a band It's a coping mechanism.
1: It's a band-aid. I
2: mean, drugs and alcohol were as much as a coping mechanism as, as working. Yeah. Like, you could say I was an alcoholic, and I was a workaholic, and I was a drug addict because those were the things I was doing to avoid life. Yeah. And once you start, like, experiencing life and you start, like, looking at things differently, you start to find joy in it a lot more, and you just start being a little bit more content. And the goal is not to be like go from like zero to one hundred. The goal is just to be like. Today I noticed. You know, um, the view. The view was amazing this morning. If you guys were up, and I seen the clouds and the sun and just the way the the skyline looked, it was just amazing.
1: Well, that was maybe-
2: my that was my joyful experience like like this morning. And you start to look for that in your day, and then you always just are looking for things that like that make you, make you smile and make you, maybe you notice. And it doesn't have to be like a view or a flower or a picture. It could just be simple things like, um, a conversation and things like that. It doesn't have to be like complicated. Just really look around you and feels like what makes people tick. Cause it's going to be different for, for everyone.
1: Well, I think that is a large part of who you are now, Scott. But I think, you know, seven years ago when I met you, you were not this person that you are now. You were a shell. And I think from me being along your side in your journey, what really started to ramp up your healing was you started changing the behaviors, the patterns, and the habits that had caused and what you surrounded with the coping mechanisms. So the friends, the lifestyle, your working lifestyle, you know, being an oil field person um, and really starting to feel like backwards all the way into the childhood. Like you started looking at your, your relationships and feeling that. And then you started then being ready to move into the trunk over in the corner. Because when I first met you, the very first thing you told me within the first, like two weeks of meeting me was the sexual abuse. But by the time you got ready to look at that, you had to look at, it's almost like you had to do chronologically, Mm -hmm. you know, the most recent Okay, we went through that house, that journey, then you move to the next and the next. So now, the person that you are now, in the last like two years, looks at the joy. But I think it's important to say that the joy is hard to get to when you're still...
2: It's hard to get to, but it's, it's hard to admit, because I can remember being in those moments, like still trying to find it. And I can remember being at work at like minus 35 in a windstorm and being like, this is just like the best thing in the world. Like there's not a lot of people that are willing to stand outside for 12 hours a day in a blizzard and work and just like laughing and having fun. And I really started to change how I worked because I buried myself in work and I would take on all of the most physical tasks that I could. But as I got, because I was such a good worker, I started getting promoted. I'd started to, look at other people and be like they can't do what i can do. They don't why should they have to? Why should they have to kill themselves for what? Like there's five other guys out here. Why is one person carrying 90% of the workload? So once I like that was like a big shift for me and i started realizing yes, that like i i i don't have to do all the work. Mm-hmm. I can give it to other people. And the other person, one person, I don't have to give it to one person. I can give it to like four people to do. I can split the workload. And I think that was a really unconscious moment. And then because I was driving to work all the time and I had a crew with me and I like to listen to country music and none of the people in the crew like to listen to to hardcore rock and rap and stuff like that, that like, no, we're in my truck. This is what I want to listen to.
1: We started taking your power back and you started started, Yeah,
2: I started putting, like, injecting myself and putting myself out there more and be like, no, this is what we're listening to. Instead of
1: being that wounded Instead victim. of
2: just being like, okay, like, you, you want to listen to that? Well, I don't want people to know that I listen to country music. Mm-hmm. And now if you look at my playlist, I have a playlist of, like, a 16-year-old girl going through a breakup. It is the <laughs> saddest thing in the world to listen to. It's all, like, love songs and slow country music and love ballads. Like it's like Taylor Swift on repeat. It's (laughs) it's almost embarrassing to even say out loud because it's not like, you know, when you go to the gym, it's not ACDC, it's not like Nickelback. It's not like Guns N' Roses or Aerosmith. It's like, okay, cool. We're going to listen to Taylor Swift 21 and we're going to lift weights. That's what I listen to. But that's
1: also injecting more of the feminine energy and demasking the whole masculinity that people don't want to do. Well, do you
0: know what it comes down to? It's just, it's so interesting because when you're just so lost, you just don't know what to do, whatever you've been doing or what your instinct is, do the opposite.
2: Exactly. That's pretty much what right? it is mm-hmm. because that's what you've been doing for so long. is comfortable that you and need And it's
0: clearly to, not working. And it's clearly <laughs> not
2: working. So it's like, well, let's, what's the opposite of that?
0: And try like, to give you, that a try. Like you
2: can't listen, you know, and I had this conversation with a guy at the gym. It's like, I can't listen to like- hardcore, heavy, fast beat music anymore when I'm working out because I get too amped up. Yeah, I get too excited and my goal is not to get too excited. My goal is to keep my heart rate low, to stay calm because the lower I can keep my heart rate, the more efficient I'm working out and the longer and faster I can go. So I don't need to be at like 200 beats per minute. I wanna be at like 60 and just like, well, I mean 60 is pretty much like walking, but like, you know what I mean? I wanna keep it as low as possible so I can get the most output it's more of an endurance rather than like a quick like if I was gonna do like a three-minute workout yeah maybe I might like throw on something heavier and and use that as motivation to move through it but now it's like okay now I'm trying to like control and actually experience things a little bit more and feel and feel Mm -hmm. what I'm doing rather than just like okay cool done yeah. I know what that has well, happened, because, but I'm done.
1: Because you're avoiding so much. Yeah. And I think, like, to take this full circle is you also avoided um, the acceptance of the trauma for a long time, meaning that you didn't want to be have any energy associated to you with the person who hurt you. So you definitely kind of avoided that. And, I mean, I think you... getting to a you are at a point today um, of radical acceptance
2: well i mean like when she when you when you mention that like i would intentionally wear jeans baggy jeans boots t-shirts all the time i had no dress clothes no button up clothes no ties no dress shoes like i lived in like like their elements the skater shoes that's what I lived in. Like, I looked grungy. Those puffy sneakers?
0: Yes. With the yeah. Oh, yeah. The the yeah. Yeah.
2: And that, that's what I, because I was so anti that. Yeah, the because, energy. The energy. Yeah. Because of what it represented. Mm-hmm. And then in my relationship with you, you're very much like into fashion and clothing. You're like, wow, look at that guy. Look how he dresses. And then we just slowly over the course of our relationship have kind of incorporated more and more of that. And it's kind of been as I incorporated more and more of that kind of energy, it was more and more accepting of that other half. Yeah. The that dark. hole that I was missing mm-hmm. was because I wasn't looking into all the dark corners and it was just a slow, long process. And I still, I think I have one pair of dress shoes. Actually, I don't think I have any dress pants well, now, the reason, but I have button-up shirts and bow ties. So and what suspenders. I'm trying to get <laughs> at is
1: the reason why he, um, avoided all that is that's what people do with their trauma because that energy of wearing certain clothing made him feel like he was the person who had hurt him. But now he he's at a point where I just spoke about previously where he's like, I have radical acceptance for, for the person who hurt me as being they were a victim too. And also by just sharing this now on this podcast, you could say, you know, is there some closing things you want to say? But I mean, you have radical acceptance of what happened to you instead of closeting it.
2: Well, I mean, I have to really look at our relationship and be thankful for it because you've really allowed me to be like, be a stubborn, you know, baggy sweatpants, grungy oil rig worker for so long. And you were just okay with it. And our conversations over the years had just slowly, you've been a lot, you were able to me as a partner to listen and to accept what I was saying And we transitioned so slowly and well, essentially safely that it was not a big like, there was no big dropout like the floor never came out. It was just a gradual ascent up the mountain to where we are today from where we were because you allowed me as a partner to, to to be safe, to feel safe, to have that safe space where I could kind of like approach in and out of it
1: yeah. And process and, your trauma and, and
2: process the trauma and move through it slowly. So in closing, like that, find those people, find those people that allow you to feel safe. And if they don't feel safe with them, then don't, then don't stay in that relationship any longer. Well,
1: and I think that what he's speaking to by sharing the story is like no different than, you know, Nikki tutorial. We were just looking at her on YouTube, mm-hmm. how she was saying she was transgender and her fiance is like staying with her and everything. She's like, but he is a safe place for me. Mm-hmm. He allows me to talk about my journey that, you know, to her is like long closed off and she's healed and transitioned. And she's like, find those people that, that allow you to be safe and come from a place of compassion and, um, and find those people. We say that in any type of awakening in any type mm-hmm. of journey. So by Scott sharing his abuse journey he's number one, accepting radical change and acceptance in his life. Mm -hmm. Correct. Yep. Second, he's owning up to, um, his spiritual awakening, his full circle moment to become the mentor that he is. Mm -hmm. And third, he's showing forgiveness to the person who hurt him because that person was a victim and people need to see that if you're sitting in that energy a victim and you're just so angry and you feel like you can never change and you can never get out of it and you just want to blame, 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 and also throw daggers at the person who hurt you and, and wish the worst upon them, you know, you're going to stay in that energy possibly for the rest of your life Mm -hmm. because there's no amount of, of daggers that, that throwing at that person can do to heal you. And I think you need to speak about that before you go.
2: Well, I mean, before you, can forgive the person that hurt you or has done any sort of trauma to you, the first person you need to forgive is yourself. The first person you need to love is yourself. And if you can't love yourself and forgive that person, and I mean, I've done horrible things, I've punched walls, I've been said mean things to people, I've been a bad friend, I've been a bad husband, you know, I've been a bad dad at times. But if I don't forgive myself for who I was back then, I can't move forward. And I have to love that person because that person that I was was so hurt and so scared that I have to forgive them because they're just they're running around bleeding everywhere and that's what people need to remember. Love yourself because you are you're worth it and there's so much more to life than your trauma, and it's so much better once you get out of the other side of that.
1: Yeah, and at the end of the day, everybody has their journey. Everybody's gone through stuff. Carly and I can sit here right now and not even remotely relate to sexual abuse. Mm-hmm. It's never come across us. Yeah. Different journeys, different experiences, um, You know, but Carly hasn't experienced what I've experienced and vice versa, but at the end of the day, the only person that you can save is yourself. And when you save yourself, and you just accept yourself for all your flaws, for all your humanness. Because at the end of the day, you're not you're not the physical human being that, that we're all looking at sitting here. We're the spiritual light beings. The soul is who we are at the essence. You're here to save that. And once you save that and you heal that, everything shifts. And this is a year about all the darkness coming to the light. And it's going to happen... In so many areas of so many people's lives because at the end of the day, nothing feels better than being free. So I want to show you huge compassion for sharing the story. And I really hope that it inspires not only women who might be in relationships with men or even other women and women relationships. But it just shows people that everybody's wounded and that masculinity you know, has been in a box for so many years. And it just needs to be released. So,
0: thanks, Scott. Thanks.